Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Uh, this is episode number 257. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Just one guest this week on the podcast, and uh, he's been on with us before. A very talented comedian who uh, was everywhere in the 70s and 80s. Uh, frequent appearances on The Tonight Show and other talk shows. Playing clubs, big rooms all over the country. And spent 14 years as the opening act for the great Frank Sinatra. And Sinatra passed away 25 years ago this month, May 14th. 1998. And so we thought we would get in touch with our friend Tom Dreesen and share some Sinatra stories from his years on the road. And so here's our conversation with Tom Dreesen on downtown. Well, we wanted to reach out to, to have you on with us because we're, uh, we're at the 25th anniversary here in the month of May of the passing of, of one Francis Albert Sinatra, who you knew uh, awfully well from uh, what, 14 years on the road touring with him. First of all, it, does it seem like it could possibly have been 25 years ago and when i think about it god how that time flew if you if you'd have said to me you know frank's been dead what eight or ten years now i said yeah about that long 25 wow wow it's it's hard to believe that 25 years ago you know i was carrying his coffin into a church and out of a church in in uh, beverly hills california you know wow I spoke, I spoke at his service, you know, I was the master of ceremonies for the service, but I also spoke um, at his service, you know, but anyhow, I miss him every day of my life. <clears throat> that, that had to be so difficult for you. I mean, you'd open for him a lot of times, but this was the, the toughest opener of all to be the master of ceremonies uh, for that. And, and you mentioned in your book, too, that uh, knowing Frank, he wanted to keep it, uh, he wanted to keep it light and funny but that had to be a tough time to be funny. Yeah, well, I, knowing him, you know, every night before I went on stage, <clears throat> our dressing rooms were adjoining, especially when we worked in Las Vegas, you know, but um, uh, even on the road, you know, I'd always go into his dressing room before the show, but he would always say to me, <clears throat> you're going on, Tommy. I said, yeah, he'd, he'd always say, well, be funny and be brief. <laughs> <laughs> he always, you know, he would tell me how much time he wanted me to do Every night, you know, uh, he, he, he wanted a 90 minute show. So some nights he'd say, Tom, do 30. I'm going to do 60. Or sometimes he'd say, Tom, do 25. I'm going to put an extra song in there or something. But he'd tell me what he wanted me to do, you know, yep. and, and adhere to that time. You know? but, but but sometimes he'd change up like early on in the evening. He might tell you 25 and then uh, sometimes come back right before you took the stage and say, oh, go ahead, Tommy, do 30 tonight. Well, he, that's, you know, a comedian, you have to adjust. In your brain, you say, okay, I got 30 minutes. I'm going to open with this. I'm, you have a, a plan, and I'll close with this. You know, I have a, like every sentence has a beginning, a middle, and an ending. Then every show has a beginning, a middle, and an ending, you know. <clears throat> and so you, you want to figure out how you're going to take them home. But he would say some nights, you know, some nights you say do 30, and you're ready to do 30, and the road manager would come in and, or, or he'd say, do 25. And the road manager would come in, Hank Catano, about uh, 
five minutes before the show and said, you know what, Frank wants you to do 30. I say, 30? Okay, now I heard in my brain. Okay, now, then you'd be ready to go on stage and they come running up and say, Frank changed his mind. He wants you to do 25 or 20 or what? And you've got to adjust in your brain here <clears throat> because he was a stickler for getting off when it was time to get off, you know. Now you opened. We, we've talked about this with you. You opened for Sammy Davis Jr. for many years. Was it uh, was Mickey Rudin, right, who approached you about opening for Frank? Yeah, I was touring with Smokey Robinson at that time, and I was working at um, Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And Frank was appearing at Harrah's, and, and, which is a, a couple of casinos over. So I was running into. The, I want to go see Frank's show one night after my show, and I was running into Harrah's, and the vice president of Harrah's Hotel, Holmes Hendrickson, stopped me. And so he was talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And he said, you know, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognize the name. That was Frank's lawyer, very powerful guy in our business. I said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. And I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the vice, I mean, the Holmes Hendrickson, I mean, I'm sorry, Mickey Rudin got a pained look on his face like he'd heard this before. And he said, he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. <clears throat> and he said, uh, Hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I like this kid. And, you know, and you know the story. A week later, they they, uh, they called me and said, would you like to do one week with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? And I said, yeah, I figure I'll get my picture taken with him, hang at every bar back in Chicago. You know. And uh, the second night, he took me out to dinner, he and his wife, Barbara. And in the middle of the meal, I can remember like it was yesterday, he put his knife and his fork down. He looked at me, he said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah. And it turned into almost 14 years, 45, 50 cities a year, uh, a friendship that I'll never forget, staying in his home six times a year down in Rancho Mirage, riding around in the desert with him till dawn, night after night. You know, he was nocturnal. He, he stayed up every night till the sun came up. You know. And it was a great friendship. In the, in the beginning, it was he was the boss of this magnificent tour. Uh, in the middle of it all, we became like buddies, you know, and he'd, he'd hang around. And then at the end of his life, he was more like a, a father to me, you know, giving me fatherly advice. You know. And <laughs> you, you write about it in the book, Tom, that, that you guys shared that uh... – the same beginnings, whether it was Hoboken for Frank or Harvey, Illinois for you, uh, being a street kid, understanding saloons and, and that life, uh, the, you you bonded over that despite the age difference. Yeah, when we were when we were in the car alone, I've, I've been asked this many times. What did you talk about? I said, you know, when we rode around in the car all night long, you know, uh, with Frank, he wasn't the great Frank Sinatra, and I wasn't this comedian. You know, he was a kid from Hoboken, and I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois. And we would oftentimes talk about that. One of the things Frank never knew was how much in awe of him I was. Because if he didn't want another fan, a guy, someone gushing over him, he, I, I picked up on that when I first started hanging out with him. He, he wanted a pal, a buddy. He didn't want to, you know, he had millions upon millions of fans, you know. So, you know, he would talk about his growing up in Hoboken, his mom and dad had a saloon, Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. I, of course, asked him, I said, Marty O'Brien? I thought it was somebody he knew. He said, no, that, my father boxed under the name of Marty O'Brien in Hoboken. And I, I said, why Marty O'Brien? 
He said there was so much prejudice against Italians in those days that Italian fighters fought under Irish names, as well as Jewish fighters like Barney Ross fought under Irish names. And so his dad fought under the name of Marty O'Brien and was pretty successful, well-known in the Hoboken area as a boxer. So then he opened up a bar called Marty O'Brien's Bar and Grill. You know, and Frank said he would, when he was a little boy, they had a piano there that you put a nickel in and this music would roll. And sometimes the sailors would give him a nickel if he would sing. And he would tell me about that, that he would sing. You know, he had a real high voice, he said, uh, that he would sing in those days. And, uh, and, and you know, so we talk about the saloons in the neighborhood. And, and of course, my mom was a bartender. I shined shoes in taverns my whole childhood. And uh, so we talked about saloons. And, and one of my favorite quotes, which was, and it's in the book, but we're, we were in a restaurant, Patsy's in New York on West 57th Street. And a guy from the New York Times was just hanging out in there, <clears throat> and he happened to be walking by. And he, I was sitting with Frank, and he jokingly said to Frank, why do you keep this guy Dreesen with you all the time uh, on, your, on your shows? And Frank said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And he said, yeah. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, then Tommy is a saloon comedian. By that, I mean we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And, and I always treasured that quote because that's exactly how I felt when I was with them alone. I'm a kid from, I really am a kid from the neighborhood. That's how I always think of myself. Uh, and and that, that's what I'll always be, just a kid from the neighborhood. We're talking with Tom Dreesen here on Downtown, a kid from the neighborhood riding across the desert, singing Strangers in the Night with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Could you have imagined that? That was a funny <laughs> night. What, what, what happened was he told me one night we were riding around and just before we were pulling into the compound, the sun was coming up he told me something very personal. And after he told it to me, he said, ah, I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, it won't go any further than this car. He said, I know, I know, but I, I shouldn't have told you that. I said, well, again, you know, it won't go any further than the car. And it's not like we're strangers. I said, we're friends, you know. He said, yeah. And I don't know what made me do it, but I smiled and I looked at him. I said, strangers in the night? He said, oh, my God, if you're going to get me sing that song get in key you know <laughs> in the night and i said exchanging glances you'd say wandering in the night so were the chances and we were singing the song we pull into the compound security let us in the gate and he's getting out of the car and he always he said good night tommy and i was going back to my bungalow that i stayed with on that compound and i was thinking if i went back to my old neighborhood and told all my buddies you know what i was just doing i was riding along with frank sinatra singing strangers at night, they'd say, get the hell out of here with that. <laughs> but, but it happened, and it's something I'll never forget. Of course, you realized early on that uh, riding with Frank, especially if he was driving, was not really a, a desirable place to be. He was not a great driver, right? I didn't let him drive, if I, if I could help it. <laughs> he, well, you, you know, it's in the book, the story that we, um, you know, the first time I went to his home, uh, I'd been touring with him about six months, and he invited me down for a weekend. And there was all these house guests at his at his uh, compound. His compound had a main house, a swimming pool, tennis courts, all that, um, and, and many other things on the compound. But on the outer perimeters were all these bungalows named after his songs. In New York, New York, Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way, and, um, and, and all these house guests. <clears throat> and so I, I checked in. 
went to my bungalow and went to this cocktail party. And there at this cocktail party are all of his house guests, Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, um, uh, 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 Kirk Douglas and his wife, Anne, Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia, um, Robert Wagner and Joe St. John, Clint Eastwood and whoever he was dating at the time. And, uh, uh, Angie Dickinson, all these wonderful people that I had seen in the movies when I was a kid in Harvey, Illinois. And I'm standing in the back looking at this thing. Oh, my God, look at this. But one of the guests also was the ambassador from Italy and his wife. So the next morning, after the cocktail party, next morning, they had a brunch. And Frank announces in front of all these people, I'm going to take the ambassador from Italy to the airport. Who wants to go with me? And in a second, the room emptied. And I was the only one standing there. I said, I'll go with you, Frank. He said, come on, Tom. We go outside. He had the station wagon that Lee Iacocca had given him. And he said, you get in the back with the ambassador's wife. I get in the back with the little Italian lady. And Matt, ambassador, gets up front with Frank. We, we go to the gate. The security guy's job is to open up the gate, go out and look on Frank Sinatra Drive, look to the left and look to the right, and then motion you out. He opened up the gate, took one step, and Frank drove right by him. Wow, out onto the street. Cars were going, sideways screeching you know <laughs> the, the old italian lady looked at me like her eyes were about this big <laughs> and i had heard him before i looked at her now we're going and he's every stop sign he came to he would uh, and get into the middle of the intersection by the third stop sign she had the rosary out she was saying the rosary you know <laughs> by the fourth stop sign i realized why that room was empty when he asked who wanted to go with him <laughs> we get to the airport he goes out to the tarmac we could drive right out to the jet that little Italian lady gets out of the car. She said to me, do you have to ride a back with him? I, I said, yes. She took her thumb and made the sign of the cross on my, on my forehead. <laughs> and on the way back, he's doing the same thing. He's talking to me. And, you know, if, if Frank wanted to go from the one lane to the other, he went. That, that directional, that's for other people. <laughs> he just, he people were screeching, and, and, and he cut a guy off. Frank went. From the outside lane to the inside lane, this guy went up on the center divide, and and Frank's still driving. And I thought, oh my God, he just cut that guy off. Again, this is my first time ever riding with him. I only toured with him six months at that time, and and now I'm thinking. And Frank's still talking. I, I remember he was talking about the Count Basie band and working with him. And this guy pulls up alongside. He chased us. He pulls up. Now he's cursing at me. You son of a you devil. And I look at the guy and I go, I'm, I'm driving you. And the guy went. <laughs> and, and I went, yeah, he went, yeah. <laughs> I know he, he wanted to go home and tell his wife, honey, you ain't going to believe who damn near killed me. Thanks. And I'm I, I love the story in the book, uh, Tom, that you share about what Frank said to your mother when she came to see the show once. That was me. My mom, I mean, you, you know, she was a bartender. And of course, Sinatra was on all the jukeboxes in all my neighborhood and everything. And in this moment for me, it was, I was so... It was such a great moment. I mean, my mom died not long after that, you know. And uh, we were appearing at the Erie Crown Theater in Chicago. And uh, she went there, and she was real shy. And I brought her backstage and introduced her to Frank Sinatra, you know. And she was just, she said, she didn't know what to say. She said, I want to thank you so much for taking care of my son. And Frank said, hey, your, your boy takes care of me. Your son takes care of me. And boy, she just, that meant the world to her. Talking with Tom Dreesen here on Downtown. More of that conversation 
right after this. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. More of our conversation about the chairman of the board with comedian Tom Dreesen here on Downtown. Tom, how did working with Frank Sinatra make you a better comedian? Well, because of the, first of all, the challenge. Prior to working with Frank Sinatra, I was doing Tonight Shows and touring with different artists, you know, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., of course, for t- over three years, and, and uh, you know, uh, Tony Orlando and Don and, and Smokey Robinson and, and uh, Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Frankie Avalon, my buddy, and Jimmy Darren, my buddy. I was working with all these different musical artists, Mac Davis, but touring with Frank, this was a whole new world, 20,000 seat arenas in Hawaii, 40,000. Now it's one thing for a comedian, you learn, it's a, I always teach young comedians, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your act? You damn right it's your act. It's your job to make it look like it's not an act. And sometimes you can do that real easy in an intimate room with a low ceiling, laughter or sound, it hits the ceiling and comes at you. But in a big arena, 20,000 people in the round, People are in front of you, on the right of you, left, and behind you. And for you to work that stage, you know, working that stage, you, it, it's, it, you have to be a monologist. Uh, Charlie Kellis had a tough time when he opened for Frank because a lot of his act was on his facial expressions. Mm. Well, people behind you can't hear your facial expressions, you know. So the monologist has a better advantage because you can still hear the spoken word even if I'm over here. But learning to work that stage in the round, you know, uh, Johnny Carson told me one time, if you're working in the round, pretend you're in your living room and people are in your living room all around you. You're in the center of your living room. Anyhow, so that was a challenge. And I had to learn how to get that audience to come to me. You know, when, when you go out in front of Frank Sinatra, in front of 20,000 seaters, first of all, the, 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 the outside the sign says Sinatra. You know, <laughs> when you... When, when the theater goes dark, the, the arena goes dark, everybody thinks Frank is coming on. The orchestra is in the pit. And, or, or something you hear, you hear, whoa, they think Frank is coming on. You know, and, and the orchestra will go, bump, ba da bum, ba they go, oh, you know, and then they say, and now the comedy star of our show, Tom Dreesen, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, I had to go up on that stage, and now if, in a 20,000-seat arena, usually 2,000 people are still trying to find their seats. So you you got to bring that attention to you right now, right right now. You got to bring them up here. You don't go out and do your your best material, your your A material, because first of all, they're still, they're still not focusing on you. So I would come out and and I would say, I'd say, how many of you out there? I want you to applaud. How many of you out there thought Frank Sinatra was coming out? Applaud, and they would applaud. I'd say, I know just how you feel. I'm a little bit disappointed myself. <laughs> it was on me, right? But again, I didn't say raise your hand, Rich. Watch, I said applaud. And I said, well, how many of you out there are in this arena 
your very first time applaud and they had applaud. Now I'm, I'm working left to right over. I'd say, how many of you out there are seeing Frank Sinatra live your very first time applaud? They would applaud. Then I'd do a throwaway line. I'd say, how many of you out there aren't wearing any underwear? Applaud or whatever. Now, my point is, I talk, you react. I talk, you react. I'm bringing them to me. Bring them to me. I talk, you react. Now, once I got, I didn't say raise your hand. I said applaud. So now, when I got them now focused on me, I would do a couple jokes about the town that we were in, Louisville, Kentucky, or wherever we were. I'd write some material prior to the show just about the, 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 the local mayor, one of the local problems the community is having, or something. But, and, and I would have the names of the governor and all that. I would do a couple of those kind of things to, to focus in that I know where we are. And then I would go into my A material, because now I got them in my hand. So it taught me to be a much better comedian uh, in front of that kind of audience. Well, I, I love your quote. You said, opening for Frank is like a former altar boy serving mass with the Pope. Uh, that, that's a, People ask me, time, you know, I'm a former altar boy, but people say, well, you know, what, what was it like opening for Frank Sinatra? It's like being an altar boy and serving mass with the Pope. I mean, this was the, the probably, arguably, the greatest career show business has mm -hmm. ever known. You, you, you forget about the fact that he's the, the greatest pop singer of all time. You can't argue that fact. He was the greatest pop singer of all time. Even the greatest singers say that. Steve Lawrence, one of the great singers of all time, said to Frank one night at dinner, you know you ruined it for all the rest of us. Because once you, they heard you sing the song, they knew how it's supposed to be sung. But forget about that. He's an actor. He won the Academy Award. He appeared in 61 films. He appeared on television series. But he was, he was an, an, an actor that won the Academy Award and never took an acting lesson. He was revered, you know, if this is a guy. What Name me an English-speaking singer that sings songs in English that could sell out 20,000 seats in Japan. How about in Brazil, 175,000 people came to see him sing. It's on the, on the internet. You can look it up. And, and 175,000 people came to see one guy sing a song. Not, not a band, not like the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. You know, one man. I mean, he was, you know, again, you were in rarefied air when you were in his tour. And that you, that I could grace the same stage with Frank Sinatra. That he would ask me to come fly with me and, 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 and come on the same stage with me. And every night when I finish my show, like in Vegas or Tahoe or Reno or Atlantic City, when I'm done, good night, everybody. As I was exiting stage right, he was entering stage right. We would crisscross, and then you get to center stage. Say, Tommy, come back out and take another bow. Tommy Jason, there he is. There's my man. And those are things that were so surreal to me all the years I toured with him, uh, you know, from where I came from, to, to have that on. You know, that that if, if CBS, ABC, NBC, or Hollywood have never even looked at me, it wouldn't matter to me that Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. said, you could grace the same stage with me, that you can close the lid on my coffin. I'm happy, and I'm a happy boy. And you mentioned that, too, that, that there were those who advised you, look, if you want to open for him, you do it for a while, do it for maybe six months, but but this can, you can get tied down, and this might impact your career, but you you made the decision that whatever the trade-offs might be were well worth it. Absolutely. My, you know, my, my manager, God rest his soul, he said, you know, Tommy, chill with him about six months, a year, but you can never become a star in the shadow of such a great star. 
I, I never ever set out in show business, and I know it sounds like BS, but I, which I never wanted to be. A, I never thought about being a star. I always wanted. To, I hopefully I could influence people somehow. That's why I give motivation talks a lot too. But you know, I, at the time that I was touring with Frank Sinatra, keep in mind I was a little boy who had eight brothers and sisters, lived in a shack. You know, shine shoes in taverns, set pins in bowling alleys, caddied in the summertime, sold newspapers, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. None of this do I regret. But also, when I caddied, you know, uh, I, I also, you know, I learned how to play golf. And I was playing a lot of sports when I was growing up, you know, as much as I could in the service on the basketball teams and playing in a fast pitch softball league. And so I was a big sports fan. At that time, they had a tour called the Celebrity Players Tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. So now I'm competing. I'm going out on, out on this tour. Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. We had 42 all Hall of Famers in show business. Eddie Marinero, you know, um, um, Smokey Robinson, um, Jack Wagner, of course, Frankie Avalon. A lot of us. Now, here I was. If you would have told me when I was a little boy, one day when you grow up, you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who ever lived in your time in an arena. I would have said, that's impossible. When I was on my hands and knees shining shoes in a bar and Sinatra was on the jukebox, if somebody said, one day, you're going to fly all over the world and appear on stages with Frank Sinatra, I'd say, that's impossible. But I was doing both of those. So you know, Christopher Morley, the author, said, success is living the life you want. I was living the life that I wanted. I was offered sitcoms. I was offered things that I turned down, shows, because I knew this was the end of an era, and I knew where I came from, and I didn't want to pass up this opportunity, and 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 I, and I don't regret it even to this day. And you got to know him so well, and you got to see firsthand, and, and you write about it a lot in your book, uh, his incredible generosity, and it wasn't something that was done for show. As a matter of fact, most of the time, he would try to do it when people weren't looking. Well, there's a great book, you know, that I believe Frank Sinatra read. I, in fact, I know he read it, but it's a book called The Magnificent Obsession by Lloyd C. Douglas. Its predecessor was a book called Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal. And in it is the secret of success. If you want to be successful, you have to believe if you pray, you ask your master, I want to be a comedian. I want to be a, a singer or whatever it is. I want, I want to be a doctor. You pray for that. You have to believe with all your heart and soul that those words, ask and you shall receive, are real. If that, if you really believe that, then you have to believe that it's going to happen. But then in the book said, the guy who wrote the book, and it later became a movie, uh, um, Rock Hudson was the star of that film. But it later became a movie. But if you once you ask your master, you have to believe it's going to happen, but then you have to watch out for his less fortunate children and how you can help them, and if you can do it in secrecy, that they don't know it then within 30 days, your master will reward you toward your endeavor. You know, and I with I, I believe Frank, he, he not only talked that talk, he walked that talk. Uh, the, the, he did more that you know, I mean, there's a lot of things you know about, but there's so many things you'll never, ever know about because he didn't want you to know about it. He was already rewarded. You know, I mean, a, a, a woman could have a, children living in a boxcar in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the daughter had a brain tumor. And in those days, you know, no insurance and nothing like that. And and someone would knock on the door and tell her all your expenses are paid. Here's a check for the hospital and all that stuff. And the guy delivering it didn't know where it came from. You know, that's the kind of things Frank Sinatra did. 
and didn't want you to know. There's a great story you share in the book. I think it was a, maybe a limousine driver, and uh, and Frank asked him, uh, "What's the biggest tip you've ever had?" Can you tell that story? Ali Parker, you know Frank. Frank tipped a hundred dollars wherever he went. If you brought him a pack of camels, he gave you a hundred dollars. If you brought him a jack and a splash, was his drink, he gave you a hundred dollars. He was a big tipper way back in the day when a hundred dollars was really a hundred dollars. But one time a valet Parker at Mommy San restaurant pulled up and in Frank's car and Frank said, what's the biggest tip you ever got? And the kid said a hundred dollars and Frank gave him two $100 bills. And he said, by the way, who gave you a hundred dollars? He said, you did last Friday, Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> I love that story. Uh, Tom, what do you miss most about the man 25 years after his passing? You know, I just, you know, when you were in his world, it was an exciting world. I, guys used to tease me. They'd say, they'd say, hey, Tom, hey, I, I see you're working with Frank, but you got to admit it's Frank's world and you live in it. I said, yeah, but that ain't a bad world to live in. <laughs> That's not such a bad world. Flying in private jets all over the world. You know, uh, it's time to go on the road. A limousine would pull out in front to get my luggage. Two big guys would come and carry my luggage down. They'd carry me down if I wanted to. You know, you know we'd drive out to the... Out, right out to the tarmac, I'd, I'd get out of the limousine, get in the jet. You know, they'd load all the luggage and everything. The moment Frank put his foot on that jet, the pilot's name was Johnny Spots. He'd say, let's go, Spots. And that, that, all that pre-flight, that stuff better be done. You know, boom, you take off down the runway, you land at the city, Buffalo, New York, or wherever. The squad cars and limousines rush you to the arena. You do the show. Squad cars and limousines rush you back to the jet. You're flying over the venue. People aren't even in their cars yet, you know. Then you would, you know, go to his home and 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 hang out with uh, with him. I, it, it's just it, it was such a wonderful, wonderful world to live in. You know, uh, it, it's it's hard to describe. Um, when that passes, you know, and I knew when I walked out of that church, Our Lady of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills, and we put that coffin in the in the uh, in the hearse. You know, I, I knew that this was something that I would never ever see again, and I'd never ever feel that. That, that, oh God! It was such a high to to be in his world, you know. And just to, to hang with. He, by the way, when you got to know him, you know, uh, like I say, in the car alone at night when we were riding around the desert, you know, he was a kid from Hoboken, I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois, and you got to know him. There was some, and he loved to laugh. I loved to make him laugh. His eyes sparkled when he hit those blue eyes were almost hypnotic. You know, sitting on this jet one day, you know, when I first started turning with him, he was sitting across from me, and the light was coming through and his eyes were blue as they were, they were really, you know, crystal blue. And, and, and now it almost said not hypnotic, you know, but when he laughed, those eyes would sparkle, you know, he loved to laugh. Oh, that's great. I'd love to hear those memories. But if you haven't read Tom's wonderful book, it's called still standing my journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. And if Tom Dreesen is coming to your town, you make sure to go see him. He is simply uh, one of the best comedians, uh, working in America today. Tom, it is so great to catch up with you once again. Thank you so much for visiting with us and, and talking about your uh, long association and friendship with Frank Sinatra. Well, you know, thank you, Rich. His music is still with us. You know, because of the, his approach to songs, and I'll close it, close with this, I know you're wrapping this up, but because of his approach to every song he sang, you know, his approach, there are millions upon millions upon millions of, of people who felt that they had a personal relationship with him uh, because his words, he was so clear on what he was singing about, it, it, you know, and his music was the soundtrack of their lives. You know, people got 
they went steady to his music. You know, when somebody loves you, they got married to his music, you know, love and marriage, you know, they got divorced to his music. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place. They got remarried to his music. Love is lovelier the second time around. You know, uh, his music was a soundtrack of their lives. And in the end, it's now the end is near. And though I face that final curtain. So, you know, um, in my 50 years in show business, you know, um, it's been just a, a struggle of ups and downs and all that stuff. But that 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 man would let me grace the same stage with him uh, again, uh, you know, it, it, uh, for a street kid from the south side of Chicago, um, uh, I, I, I'm so indebted to him. And I, I'm so grateful that, that he wanted me as opening act all those years. That's wonderful. Tom, thank you so much. It's great to talk with you again. You too, Rich. Take care. That's so much fun. Tom Dreesen with us talking about his uh, relationship, both professional and personal, with Francis Albert Sinatra, who passed away 25 years ago this month. Our thanks to Tom for being with us. Thanks to you for joining us as well. And we'll see you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.